Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's April 17th, 2020, and it's an exciting time of the year for professional wrestling. WWE, AEW, two of the only things still going on. They canceled UFC, so professional wrestling is the place to be, and without a doubt, people are going to be looking to get in on the action, and we have the best place for you to go. My bookie for the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot. Try Parlay. For instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this week, Parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. My bookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around. And if you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. That means if you deposit two grand, you'll get an extra grand in free money to play with. All you have to do is use our promo code BLV, that's capital BLV, to activate the offer. Once again, that promo code is BLV to get your extra cash from my book. April 17th, 2020, episode 183, talking Edge, the second Mountain WWE 24 documentary. We're about five weeks now into this pandemic with COVID-19. President Trump, uh, I don't like to talk politics, but I'm going to mention this. President Trump is now giving governors of each state the opportunity to call their own shots. That's what he said, not me. Uh, moving forward, and the governor of Ohio says that they plan on reopening on May 1st, according to Twitter. That's my source. I, I, I have no idea. Uh, New York and New Jersey not reopening anytime soon. Go figure. It, it snowed yesterday, April 16th, in the middle of April, and it's snowing outside. I mean, no, no wonder nobody's getting better. The weather sucks. Uh, but th- that's about all I'll say on that. I mean, is it a smart decision to reopen on May 1st for the state of Ohio? Not for me to say. Let's talk about Adam Edge Copeland, WWE 24 documentary. It's out now. It came out uh, the day after WrestleMania, or I think literally right after WrestleMania 36, Sunday, April 5th. Uh, and like I said, this was probably the best documentary WWE has ever done. They've done a lot of great ones. There's a lot of great ones out right now. Uh, the Hardy Boys, Jeff and Matt, uh, struggling with uh, drugs and alcohol for many years, still having a way. Um, that's a great documentary. Dave Batista as well, struggling uh, uh, with, with his life as well, growing up in, in a very dangerous part of Washington, D.C. They have a great one on Daniel Bryan after his retirement, Seth Rollins, Triple H, uh, a lot of the WrestleManias. This is probably the best one that they've ever done. And again, they've done a lot of great documentaries, a lot of great content on the WWE Network, but this one, this one takes the cake. I mean, I kind of wanted to do a full breakdown of this. So if you haven't seen it, uh, stop watching and go watch it and then come back. But <laughs> this is probably um, the most heartfelt documentary. Like if, if you're a WWE fan, this is going to give you goosebumps. You're going to tear up. The soundtrack helps. Uh, a lot of Foo Fighters, a lot of Pearl Jam. Uh, a lot of great music. I mean, it opens up with Edge, again, Adam Copeland, kind of speaking to the camera. I mean, they, they said initially, like I said, 
this documentary was designed to be about his life after professional wrestling. I mean, he did uh, a lot of work in acting. I mean, I think they said that he did a total of 99 episodes on uh, TV shows with the Vikings, as well as Haven on sci-fi. He did three movies as well. And it was all about moving on, kind of adapting to life after wrestling. But then stuff started to, to spin. Stuff started to happen. It looked like there was uh, maybe a possibility for him to come back and wrestle again. I mean, things started to snowball. There were, there were a lot of um, hardworking elements into this. There were cards put down that he didn't really expect to be put down. He, he wasn't given um, a choice the first time. I mean, he was given a second act here when he thought that the first act was it in pro wrestling. He, he's still wrapping his mind around the fact that he has a second chance in professional wrestling, and they show footage of Adam sitting backstage, I think presumably at the Royal Rumble where he returned, and he says that uh, that obviously perhaps he'll feel different after uh, the first one is out of the way, him talking about his first match, uh, but that right now he just feels like it's a fantasy to him. Uh, they show him at Gorilla, uh, Gorilla position right in front of the stage, of course, for those uh, who don't know what Gorilla position is. And, of course, the Royal Rumble buzzer hits. He, he takes a deep breath, steps forward. His music hits. The fans go nuts. You think you know me. Miles Kennedy, Alter Bridge, Metalingus. Great song, by the way, available on iTunes. And uh, he, he was talking about his retirement. I mean, Edge said that going into his final WrestleMania match, I think it was WrestleMania 27 in Atlanta against Alberto Del Rio for the World Heavyweight Championship, he knew something obviously was up with his neck, but didn't know to what extent. Uh, he had undergone surgery already back in 2003, uh, wrestled for eight more years, and then he was in a lot of pain. But he assumed that that's just what it was going to be like moving forward. And the only person who really knew what he was going through at that time, you could say, was Christian, his best friend, who, of course, was interviewed throughout the documentary. He commented that Edge was pushing himself because he wanted to get through WrestleMania, at very least wanted to get through the biggest event uh, in sports entertainment. And, of course, Adam noted that he remembered taking a moment to look around and taking the crowd one final time as if it was going to be his last match. And one of his personal friends outside of the wrestling world texted him and even asked him, was that your last match? You just had a different look in your eye. Uh, he had a different look on his face, and Ed said no, maybe, maybe in a year or two. But obviously he was going to take a break soon because his neck was in a lot of pain. Um, I mean, Edge had hinted that he was thinking of wrapping up his career, like I said. Um, Edge assured his friend here, his name was Mike, in the documentary, his friend Mike, that uh, he, he was good and that he was good to go. But, of course, like he said in his retirement speech on Raw, the WWE and Vince McMahon wanted him to get more tests on his neck. So Christian, uh, when he was being interviewed in the documentary, said that Edge went for a doctor's appointment. And when he got it, he got a personal phone call from Vince McMahon and was told, you have to retire, you have no choice. And Edge said that, of course, the choice wasn't his and something that he had wanted to do since he was a kid. Being a pro wrestler, for a lack of a better term, was taken from him. So he had to adapt to a new life. And if he didn't, he was going to have a, quote unquote, very emotionally unhappy future in his eyes if he didn't get through this uh, very difficult part of his life. And, of course, they show footage of Edge's retirement speech from that Monday Night Raw back in 2011. He said that he felt very sorry for himself for a few days. Uh, realized that he didn't, uh, that, I mean, everything that he had done in his career, he did it to the fullest extent. I mean, he looked back at his career and said, I did everything that I wanted to do. It's not like anything was robbed from him, except for the fact that he wanted to continue being a professional wrestler. I mean, there's a lot of those guys. Randy Orton, uh, still a professional wrestler. He's 40 years old now. He's been doing it for 15 plus years at, at the highest level. 
I mean, Edge still ended his career at WrestleMania in a world title match. I mean, there's nothing to complain there either, but he wanted to retire knowing that it was going to be his last match, going into the match. Uh, They showed a radio appearance where he talked about breaking his neck in 2003, which, of course, led to him uh, being told that he had to retire. Um, And I think think he was on the radio show because he was promoting uh, Haven, which, again, was a sci-fi series at the time. I don't know if it's still on TV. Uh, and that's the next thing that he went into was Haven. I mean, the executive producer of Haven, Sean Pillar, said that uh, they saw his retirement speech from that Raw, and they, they they were moved by it. They heard that he was a great guy to work with, and of course he had he had the good looks. So they took a chance and made a deal for him to be to be uh, make a guest appearance on Haven. And of course he had all the experience from the pro wrestling world, but he didn't have any real knowledge of the techniques of filmmaking. But within 20 minutes on set, he had picked it all up, according to Spiller. So he, he went from being booked for one episode, a guest appearance on Haven, to doing 42 episodes on Haven, becoming a regular character on the show. And Edge said that wrestling and acting, of course, are just different branches on the same tree. I mean, we, we see a lot of behind-the-scenes footage uh, of Beth Phoenix, of course, uh, when he started acting. She said that um, he started taking acting classes and then went to Los Angeles, California, to get an agent. I mean, that's how into it he was, uh, trying to pick up his new act after wrestling. I mean, he was transitioning well, but, of course, when he was told when he had to retire, um, he was told that he would eventually, uh, uh, not immediately, but eventually would need another neck surgery. He had that one in 2003, and they said that he needed a second one. So they, they said that in the documentary that he kept putting it off, but it got to a point where he couldn't go more than two or three hours without laying down flat on his back and that he was having a hard time holding stuff, like a cup of coffee, I think Beth said in the documentary. Of course, they show footage of Edge uh, being wheeled into surgery for the second time. I think it was in 2012 when he got the surgery. He had a double surgery done initially. He developed problems. I think it was with the, the problem was with his neck was the disc above where, he, of course, he had the double fusion neck surgery in 2003. And uh, after breaking his neck, of course, and then a year after the retirement, like I said, in 2012, he had the surgery with Dr. Joseph uh, Maroon in Pittsburgh, which is one of WWE's top doctors. Um, And after he woke up, he told his wife, Beth Phoenix, I I don't feel any pain. I don't feel pain in my neck. I don't have headaches. Um, And he said that he didn't realize that he had had been having headaches after after the fact uh, when he woke up because he was in so much pain that he was just like numb to it. He didn't realize how good he possibly could have felt after the surgery. So when he woke up, he's like, I feel like a brand new person. I didn't even realize how much pain I was actually in. And Beth says in the documentary that she's like, I think it was just the pain meds talking. And they, they of course, take it one day at a time moving forward. But Edge said that the pain never came back after that. And he even said that he didn't lose any mobility and felt fine and went about his life like he had before. Uh, I mean, he, but he had been told that the future uh, wouldn't have included pro wrestling, obviously, so it wasn't in the cards, and he wasn't even getting checked on to see if he could return. I mean, he was just out of the cards at that point. It wasn't part of his future, and I think he finally accepted that a couple years later. I mean, he w- washed his hands of wrestling, he said. He couldn't do it, so he moved on with his life, and then... Of course, after a few years, he obviously wasn't around. He didn't watch professional wrestling, but after a few years, he started slowly dipping his feet back in the water. I mean, him and Christian started, of course, the podcast, um, the wrestling podcast, the ENC Pod of Awesomeness, and then, of course, they got their own WWE Network show, the Edge and Christian show. Uh, I mean, 
I think Adam realized he could still watch it and enjoy it. I mean, it took, uh, again, a couple of years to get there after a trip uh, to WWE NXT, though. He was reminded of why the business was so great, seeing the passion in that performance center in Orlando, seeing all the young talent. And after being there, he gave everyone his number. Uh, he wanted to be a mentor to these young guys and told them that if he needed, if they needed anything, that if they had a question that he might be able to answer, to fire away and call him. And, of course, like I mentioned before, Tommaso Ciampa, uh, one of NXT's bright and young stars, noted that Edge was one of his favorite wrestlers ever throughout his life. And after texting him for two-plus hours, uh, Tommaso Ciampa turned to his wife and said, I think I'm friends with Edge, which, which is pretty funny. I mean, they showed footage of Edge uh, talking backstage with Ciampa, who, of course, was in a neck brace after his own neck surgery. Remember, Tommaso Ciampa broke his own neck. And he said that Edge was so important to the process for his own return to the ring. And Beth Phoenix even said that Edge was able to give back to the business that he loved so much for so many years. And uh, Adam said that he loved being a, a sounding board in a way and being part of the business that he loved for so many years. They show Adam doing some uh, uh, fight scenes on a set in another movie. I think it was Vikings. Uh, he had a, just a gruesome, just a, a giant, colossal, grotesque beard uh, that I could only wish to attain one day. But they had him doing fight scenes, physical fight scenes. And they said uh, Beth Phoenix kept saying that Edge kept being given all these physical things to do in film and on TV, and that she noted that she kept checking in on him and asked how he felt, of course, because he kept telling her that he felt really good. He felt fine because he was doing clotheslines, he was, he was doing stunts, and Edge noted that he kept doing all these physical things, but when you, you get to Vikings, it was another level. He said that the actors were doing their own stunt and that he would have to take it. He, even with doing the stunts, he never thought in his mind, if I can do this, why can't I wrestle? I mean, it's all the same stuff. I mean, it's all it's all scripted. It's all the same. You're still putting your body on the line in these stunts and film. He, he was just happy. You know, it just never came to his mind that if I can do this on TV, why can't I wrestle on TV? And then, the, of course, they send the documentary, of course, the loss of both uh, uh, Judy Copeland, the mother of Edge, and then, of course, Beth Phoenix's dad. They lost Beth's dad a few months after Edge's mother had passed away, and they all went into this season of quote-unquote funk, like he says in the documentary. And when it came time for, of course, his career to end in 2011, uh, you, you could watch it right now on both Raw and SmackDown. His mother was there. She was a big part of that uh, final send-off. Uh, I mean, if you're a fan of Edge and professional wrestling, you, you could look it up now. I mean, Edge's mother was a vital part of his life growing up. Um, I mean, they show a bunch of footage of his mom on stage with him after his retirement speech. Uh, I mean, Beth Phoenix said that they were all just a wreck as it unraveled. Uh, I think it was in 2018. And, of course, Vikings ended. Uh, his doctor said to him that he hadn't had a checkup since his surgery in 2012. Uh, I think this was Maroon talking and that they should have it looked at because, again, he's done all those stunts on TV. I mean, he's had to have taken a toll. Uh, the local doctor, obviously, after he got the checkup, uh, uh, they told him that his neck obviously isn't a young neck, but it looks in great shape. The hardware looks great, and that there was no pressure on his neck and that it looked normal, like a normal spine. And he's like, normal? And Edge said that it, it, it all started with a bike crash. He said, of course, like I said, he was on uh, the Celtic Warrior workouts on YouTube uh, with Seamus, 
and that they were riding bikes throughout the mountains in uh, his home of Asheville, North Carolina, and that he crashed. He, uh, he took a little spill, and he came up and realized that his neck didn't hurt at all. That was the first thing that he realized. He's like, my neck doesn't hurt at all. And, and they show footage as they were filming him and Seamus during the Celtic workouts. The first thing that he thought was, okay, on the footage, he joked that people will see that and ask why he can't wrestle. And after that moment, he, he wondered if there was more to that that met the eye because he felt nothing. He felt great after taking a bump, a real bump. And, of course, he, uh, he was in Toronto, Ontario, Canada for SummerSlam weekend in 2019 because Beth Phoenix, of course, does commentary for WWE NXT. And, of course, seeing uh, uh, his old stomping grounds, he talks about what... Uh, how many great memories there were. The company reached out and wanted to do the documentary. That's when it started for uh, uh, SummerSlam weekend. He agreed to do it. He brought them to what used to be his old wrestling school out in uh, Toronto and where he had his first pro wrestling match. Because, again, he grew up in Canada, uh, but shortly moved, obviously, his new home in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, but he walked out of that ring feeling like it was WrestleMania, he said. They said that they show him walking around backstage at SummerSlam 2019 in Toronto, and he talked about the history that he's had in Toronto. I mean, Edge and Christian uh, broke up there in a storyline on screen. They had their last singles match there. They had their first TLC match ever there. Uh, Beth and uh, Beth Phoenix, of course, his wife, and he started dating after Edge's Appreciation Night event there on SmackDown in 2011. I think that was in September of 2011, a few months after he had retired. Uh, he said that they started talking that night. I mean, his relationship, uh, he says, with the mother of his children began in that building in Toronto, and it was all kind of overwhelming to him, just going back and reminiscing about all those memories. And and they go to the footage of Edge, Adam Copeland here, and Christian going through a box of old artwork and papers, like I said, that Edge's mother had saved that he had forgotten about. I mean, it was given to him by his aunt after his mother had passed, and it was all old artwork and gear designs, a comic book that he wrote when he was a young kid that he made of himself and Christian as wrestlers. Remember, Edge and Christian have been best friends since they were little kids growing up, uh, all the way up into WWE to today. And Edge said that, of course, that he's thankful that his mother saved all of that for him because their they're, they're memories uh, uh, that, that came flooding back to him. Now, now that he has his own kids, that now that he has kids of his own, he gets why she saved all of that. And she knew that this is all that he ever wanted to do, be being a professional wrestler and all. And she must have known one day that he'd find that box. And Christian said that when he processed everything that was in the box, it was therapeutic and gave him kind of some closure on that part of his life. And, uh, I mean, we watch Edge backstage at NXT in this documentary. It ended up being a, a nice week during SummerSlam week, which it wasn't supposed to be. He, he had... Uh, to close his mom's estate out, out out in Toronto. That's why he was there initially. So he, he, he knew that he had to go and do it after putting it off for weeks and weeks. But at the end of the week, WWE would, of course, be there, and he could go and catch up with everybody, uh, all of his old, old co-workers. He and Vince McMahon had talked uh, of him doing something at SummerSlam since he was in the building, possibly cutting a promo. But, of course, Adam joked in WWE, until you're in the ring, uh, nothing's certain, you know. Vince changes his mind all the time, but uh, Adam, of course, loved acting at the time, but nothing, nothing compares to having your theme music and having that rush and doing matches in, in front of thousands of people in a professional wrestling ring. I mean, they show him coming out as because he was at SummerSlam 
for the pre-show, Elias, of course, was doing the same old shtick here of uh, playing his guitar, insulting the crowd. Uh, of course, Edge comes out, uh, takes a good look at the crowd. Everybody just thinks that he's going to cut a promo, and then all of a sudden, he speared Elias. For the first time in eight years, Edge hit a professional wrestling move. He, he took a bump. And, of course, after that, Edge went backstage. Beth Phoenix checks on him backstage and said that he was fine because she had no idea that he was going to do that. And, of course, Edge jokes that, of course, she's mad at him for uh, for hitting the spear and that she joked right back, looking right at the camera, saying that she'll be mad at him off camera. And Beth Phoenix said that she had snuck out into the crowd for that to see it but did not expect any physicality. It was one of those unplanned moments, Edge said. And she wondered what, of course, was going through his mind uh, at the time, and Edge said that he knows people were wondering what had happened, but he's done stunts and physicality in movies and on TVs, so he knows that he can do it. And he he's spoken to wrestling doctors and medical doctors, and of course he knew where he was at with his neck at the time. He knew where he took um, the the people and what he wanted to keep uh, them there for and uh, go home. He wanted to keep that that level of excitement up. He didn't want to just bore them with words. He he wanted to enter that ring at an all-time high with with that crowd at an all-time high in Toronto and he wanted to keep that uh that that level of emotion up to to its entity. And Edge said that uh he could feel the wave of people and that he knew that he just had to do it. He had to hit the spear as a pro wrestler as an artist. You know your body and and he had a weird inkling, he said that just like did that he did that at WrestleMania and he and he was right it was like WrestleMania to him and after SummerSlam though uh, this is where it got interesting with all elite wrestling he said in the documentary he didn't say all elite wrestling but he said another company in the industry contacted him and said that they were interested and wanted to know if that he could wrestle I mean again it was all elite wrestling but before he could talk about anything he decided that he needed to go find out if he could wrestle because he he's like i have no idea i have no idea if i could wrestle but that's initially i believe in august of 2019 when he finally got that bug he's like what if um and beth phoenix told him that as his wife and the mother of his kids that she needed to hear it from like the best in the world the best of the best when it came to doctors that it would be a-okay, absolutely 100% good to go. And, of course, she needed to see that for herself, not just hear it secondhand from him. So they actually ended up going to see five or six doctors in that short time period at the end of 2019. And every time that they had another appointment, uh, she thought, of course, this was going to be the reality check of being told, no, this just this is never going to happen. Uh, but that never happened. And Edge told them, that when they, they give him the offer for him to come work for them, and then he's talking about AEW, he's like, I got to go talk to Vince McMahon. He, he's done right by me my entire career. I got to talk uh, to basically his creator in pro wrestling. So they, they showed footage of him uh, and Vince talking backstage at, at the WWE Hall of Fame induction. I mean, Edge trusted him to be one of his generals and to be a pillar of this company. And uh, that's exactly what Vince McMahon did. He, uh, uh, Vince trusted Edge to be one of his top guys with the Cena's and the Orton's and the Triple H's at the time. And Edge went to visit Vince. He's like, I got to do this in person. Uh, could we talk? And he's like, yeah, we could talk. And he, he wasn't trying to get a bidding war going or anything like that, but he's like, I have an offer on the table from, you would assume, all elite wrestling. And WWE didn't know that this could be possible, and neither did Edge if he could ever wrestle again. 
But he told Vince everything uh, that he had learned from doctors. Again, he went to five or six doctors all telling him, yeah, your neck's fine. And Vince McMahon said that if a comeback was going to happen in pro wrestling for Edge, it needed to happen in WWE. Obviously, he would say that. I mean, he's not going to watch Edge, one of his most uh, prestigious stars of all time, uh, make his triumphant return after a decade in the rival business. So Vince McMahon, of course, sent Edge to Dr. Joseph Maroon, uh, where he got the second surgery in 2012. That was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I mean, this would be... Um, this would be like the first inkling of everybody saying, oh, Edge is cleared. Edge is coming back. Uh, he's denying it, but I think he's coming back because I think it was PWInsider.com that first reported that Edge um, uh, <laughs> Edge just denied it. He's like, I wasn't there. Uh, because you, you, you see in the documentary Edge being like, okay, I hit a spear at SummerSlam, so everybody's kind of uh, skeptical now. Like, uh, is he coming back? And then there were reports saying that he was in Pittsburgh visiting Maroon, and he denied those reports even though he was in Pittsburgh visiting Maroon trying to get cleared. And uh, Vince McMahon said that they, of course, could take a look at him and that he could go through all of WWE's testing because they're not going to put him out in a match without going through WWE's doctors. And Beth Phoenix, of course, her heart, in her heart of hearts, thought that um, Dr. Maroon here in Pittsburgh was going to tell him that it's just not going to happen. This is finally going to be the one. Five or six doctors all said, yeah, your neck's fine. Uh, we think you're good to go. But WWE's doctor, she thought this is this is going to be the end of the line. This is going to be the reality check that he's just it's, it's not going to happen. And of, even Edge, Adam Copeland admitted that he felt that it was way uh, out of reality because Maroon was the doctor who personally made the decision to medically disqualify Edge and had him retire from in-ring competition back in 2011, leading to his retirement. And they said, I think Beth said it in the documentary, that she was flying to Orlando for an NXT taping, and when she landed, there was a text from Adam Copeland, her husband, Edge. Two words, I'm cleared. And with that word, they say, and I quote, Edge was resurrected. I mean, that was a goose moment in that documentary for sure. And, of course, Edge said that after all the surgeries and the nine years of retirement and all the work that he put in, he can come back finally and do this. He could wrestle uh, in WWE again. And, and, of course, as content as he was with his acting career, as well as being a father, he had two girls with Beth Phoenix, two young daughters. Um, if you put a challenge there, he says he has to try and sink his teeth into it. And Beth Phoenix said it was a huge, pivotal moment in their lives. She was both terrified and excited for him. And Edge, he was told all the things that he could do and what to avoid by his doctors. I mean, you won't see him jumping through a flaming table with thumbtacks in his back anymore against McFoley. He said that the challenges are, are, are things that he loves uh, about this opportunity. He loves overcoming challenges. You put a challenge in front of him, he's going to step right through it. And I think it was November of 2019, a few months, two months before his uh, eventual return at the Rumble, he visited WWE headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut to get the process started with all the writers. I mean, they showed Jeff Jarrett and Edge joking around. Uh, Edge said that he, he's meeting with, of course, the marketing team here and creative team, all the writers, to get a plan together for his t return, what his big uh, WrestleMania storyline was going to be. Um, he, uh, he shows them an emblem design that brings in different elements of his character. Uh, in those meetings, though, Edge said that he, his envisions coming back to the Rumble he wanted it to be an absolute surprise because you don't see that in pro wrestling anymore. I mean, even even I mean, even when he returned, you're like, oh, all those reports were true. I mean, it was still exciting that he denied it and that we got that surprise. But there were still uh, inklings that he might be coming back. I mean, he asked 
if he wants to keep it kayfabed, uh, he was asked that by the writers, and Ed said he's trying to keep it as close to the vest as possible, trying to make this as big of a surprise as possible in the Royal Rumble. Remember when he returned? uh, It was a surprise in 2010. That was before everybody started reporting stuff that he was returning, and he did at number 29. He had the big feud with Chris Jericho. And then, of course, in 2020, everybody uh, there's like an inkling that he's coming back, but not not too many people are very sure. I, for one, thought it was just a bunch of hoobla, a big fallacy. I mean, the guy hasn't wrestled in nine years. I think he's medically disqualified. And then he came out. I was like, oh, shit, it's happening. But at the same time, I mean, I think he even noted in the documentary that there's uh, uh, like I said, that there were rumors and that he noted that he was seen in Pittsburgh. And sure enough, I was in Pittsburgh. Uh, he must be up there to see Maroon, and sure enough, I was up there to see Maroon. So they, they showed Edge responding via Twitter, uh, and I quote, no, I'm not, and I'm never going to wrestle again. Uh, he commented that the unexpected reaction, of course, is something that he loved more than anything, so it, it's rare that you can get it nowadays, given how everything is uh, uh, lined up for that. So one of the, the things that the internet has done, of course, is spoil the surprise. They, they show images of WWE tweets in this documentary announcing things like John Cena's return, uh, CM Punk returning to FS1, um, just things that are going to happen on on their programming now and again when they announce things. Batista's return in 2014 they announced. Things are announced beforehand because they might leak or spill, which WWE, I guess they just bite the bullet on it. And, and they have a moment there to have one of the most... Um, unique moments in history with Edge's return, if they could keep it a secret, that they have... I mean, he felt good about uh, the creative meetings at the headquarters, and, and then he went home, and, uh, and now he has specific goals to work towards. I mean, he's cleared. Uh, he's worked with the creative team. He knows what his storyline is, but he's got to get his ass into shape. So he went home. They gave him his own ring. Triple H and Vince provided him his own ring in his warehouse, Nashville, North Carolina. I mean, there's footage of Edge... Um, getting back into the ring for the first time, taking a few bumps, and he said he couldn't go to the performance center because everybody would see him in the ring, and that that's how the reports would start. So he called Triple H about getting a ring brought to his home in North Carolina, and they immediately agreed. They're like, yeah, man, here it is. And Edge says in the documentary, if you had told 13-year-old Adam Copeland that he was going to have his own ring supplied to him by WWE... I mean, it's crazy. It's it's his own field of dreams. And they showed footage of him working out in the ring with Beth Phoenix. Um, uh, Adam, of course, needed a partner. I mean, Beth could only do so much with him in the ring because he's six foot three, two hundred thirty-five pounds. Because um, there were a few times where like Edge was body slamming Beth Phoenix. Uh, I mean, he he joked that it was still odd to wrestle her. He was just like, "Okay, honey, I need you to body slam me." And, and there were there were only so many people you could trust when you're keeping your comeback a secret. But of course, when his wife is one of those people, it, it's pretty kick ass. And, and they they showed footage of Edge at home with his daughters. He's making dinner because again, Beth Phoenix is on the road with NXT as, as a commentator. So. I mean, all this material in this documentary is awesome. They FaceTime with Beth, who's on the road. Uh, Beth said that he never bought into the dynamic that if you're a homemaker, that makes you a lesser person as parents. And Beth Phoenix is gone, of course, two and a half days a week with NXT, and it's hard to do that uh, while managing her own career. So there are a lot of uh, elements, and there's there's a lot of notes left on the fridge. Uh, We see footage of them. Uh, going over plans for their kids. Uh, Edge's first question when he's offered something is whether they're taking away from the kids because they have to balance that. I mean, she needed, of course, a partner who can manage the entertainment life in pro wrestling and acting and still be a good father at home. 
uh, to her two daughters, and he's all of those things. And Edge even talked about his own mother, saying that she always had his back from day one. He feels that is how he is, how how he has his girls' backs now. I mean, that his mother was a huge part of his life, like we said. And that is more important than anything. Uh, to be the best person that he could be as Adam Copeland and to be the best dad, he had to take on new challenges. He had to be driven. He had to be focused. He had to be inspired. And Adam Copeland said that if you thought he'd be getting ready for a WWE comeback while his kids were getting ready for school, um, it was just something really special. And he, he had the awareness to realize how special it truly was. He soaked every moment in. He, he gets to feel it and enjoy it this time around. And, of course, he had the warehouse. He had, he had his own gym that he could work out in in Asheville, North Carolina. He said that rediscovering the gym was huge for him uh, and his mentality, just his mental estate. He, he said that he looked at his daughters and that he needed to be healthy for them. And once he made a gym for himself and it was only 20 feet away, it became his passion again. And he didn't want to go to bed. He wanted to train. He didn't want to come back for a 40-second match. I mean, I think his match at WrestleMania was a 40-minute match with Randy Orton. I mean, they show him uh, doing exercises where he can strengthen his neck, obviously. He noted that all the past injuries and how he's been training, everything with the idea of making those muscles stronger for the comeback, and it was essential. They go into much footage here of Edge picking Beth Phoenix up at the airport. She's on, like, two hours sleep, but she's going right to the ring with him because... He's at a point where he needs reps in the ring, and he's not getting it anywhere else because, again, he's trying to keep it a secret. He can only trust so many people. And even Beth Phoenix admitted that she can only do so much with him in a professional wrestling ring because, again, he's 6'5", 235. So Dash Wilder, one half of the Revival at the time, they've since been released, but Dash Wilder arrived uh, under the cover of Darkness to work with Edge in the ring Um because Beth, I think she acted as a referee at this point, because Dash Wilder was a trainer at the Gold's Gym in Asheville, North Carolina, when Edge began training there, but never told Edge that he was a wrestler. So this was way back in the day, back in 2007, 2008, which uh, 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 went a long way with Edge personally, because when Edge found out from someone else, he approached Dash Wilder and asked him why he didn't clue Edge in and told him to send Edge footage of him in the ring. And Wilder did, and he was very good. And Edge actually gave WWE officials uh, Dash Wilder's wrestling tape, which got Dash Wilder a tryout with WWE. Um, I think he gave John Laurinaitis at the time, who was the head of talent relations, a DVD of Dash Wilder. And he said that Edge, this is Dash Wilder talking, said that Edge changed uh, his life. He changed the life of a guy who loved the business as much as Adam Copeland did. And that was Dash Wilder. I mean, Edge said that he's not going to, He's not just going to bat for someone unless he thinks that they can do things on a high level. And he thinks, obviously, years later that it was the right call. And now he's helping Edge. He's giving back to the guy who gave him his start in WWE. And Dash Wilder said, of course, that he he wants to treat him like he's fragile. But at the same time, he's really not fragile. Um, He's moving better than he did when he had to retire in 2011. Edge is going to come back, and he, and he he wanted to kill it. There's a lot of fun footage here of Edge and Beth training and goofing off in the ring, having a good time, because, again, he's enjoying it. He's taking in every moment here to enjoy it now as a 46-year-old. And Beth Phoenix said that they, of course, are reminding themselves of how much fun wrestling can be. And with this gift, with this talent, they're, they're controlling what they can control, and they let the rest go. And that that's going to make for a fun experience not only for themselves but for the audience um dash wilder said that he didn't even want beth to be so fearful 
uh, uh, when they were wrestling, because again, you're wrestling this man's, uh, you're wrestling this man with his wife as the referee, and he, he's coming off a nine-year hiatus due to a, a very serious neck injury. You don't want to hurt him um, right in front of his wife. But Beth Phoenix even admitted that this process was very scary for her. I mean, towards the end of uh, the documentary, they say towards the end of Edge's mom's wife, Judy. Uh, Judy Copeland, um, she asked Beth Phoenix, who was his wife, to continue to look out for Edge, her son. And she she said that she made a promise to think of, uh, she made a promise that she would have always look after Edge. And she said that that promise is to think of, uh, uh, she thinks about it every day, and that's why all of this is something that she takes very uh, seriously, because what if this doesn't pan out the way they think of it? Like, worst case scenario, what if Edge ends up in a wheelchair, you know? Like, what's she looking out for his best interest is? I mean, you can't really say that. She knows Adam, of course, is going to do great, and he got cleared by the best doctors. So, I mean, but she's still very fearful of this going in. And he's one of the best, of course, to do ever do this. He's one of the best professional wrestlers in the industry. But, of course, she still needs him to be safe for their kids. Again, father of two daughters. But she's really happy that they have a, a great crew around them making this happen. Of course, Dash Wilder, a big part of that in his training. Um, and after all these workouts, Adam says that he, he, he felt... Uh, like he was just in a match, he, he doesn't feel sore, and that he felt ready. He felt like a 25-year-old juggernaut ready to step back through those ropes, guns blazing, going up against the likes of Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns and AJ Styles, the club, Dolph Ziggler. Um, I think the one spear he hit that was most defining at the Rumble when he first came back was Carl Anderson. I mean, they show footage of Edge um, flying into Houston on a private plane heading for the Royal Rumble and that he's ready to go. He's ready to try and have fun. We'll see what happens. And the day of the Rumble, he goes from a uh, uh, Humvee, you could say, to, to a golf cart to be driven in with a hood over his head. Um, to, again, to obscure his identity here. He's trying to keep this a big secret. Uh, he even said that they, they they whisked him in like a secret agent here, kind of like kind of like 007, and kind of secured him into a secret room where nobody could see him. Um, and he said that at that moment, it's still up for debate as to whether he entered the Royal Rumble match or not. So since he's been so secretive, it, it it's caused him to have. Uh, him hackled up and in a room by himself and, and guarded to, the, to make this special for the audience, not just for him, but for the audience, for his co-workers. His co-workers don't even know that he's going to be back. I mean, he really wants this as a fan, fan growing up in professional wrestling, to give back that sort of surprise to everybody else. And he's got to get it out. I mean, the entrance hopefully uh, will... I mean, this is what he says. The entrance will hopefully allow him to get that nervousness out before he enters the ring, regulate his heartbeat a little bit, and before he actually gets out and starts swinging at people. So uh, I think they said that Beth Phoenix, of course, brought him food. Uh, Edge ended up uh, hiding. Someone knocked on the door. He ended up hiding behind the door. Um, they, they talk a lot about his process and how they, they needed to enjoy this because this is never going to happen again. This scenario is never going to happen again. I mean, nine years off after a career-ending neck injury, you fight back, you get cleared a decade later. You Nobody's ever going to get to do this. this. This scenario has never happened before. Um I mean, uh, then the Rumble is underway. Edge, of course, showing off his new in-ring jacket, which I think he made from a company that makes, of course, jackets for rock stars. Um, Warnstar, I believe it's called. And today, of course, he wants to make sure he soaks every moment in, like he said. 
Um, cause again, it's never going to happen again. There's not going to be another miraculous comeback nine years after injury, which I find so inspiring. Uh, if people come away from that match feeling that he can still go, then edge would have felt that he succeeded. And uh, I think it's safe to say that he did. I mean, this is all still a fantasy, uh, for wrestling fans as well as for Adam edge Copeland. I mean, he's walking around in the back now. Becky Lynch sees him. She's like, he looks amazing. He looks better than he ever has before. Alistair black commented that he couldn't even believe he was going to be in the ring with edge. Kevin Owens was ecstatic that he actually got to be in the ring with edge. Um, of course, Edge is warming up in the back. He said that he thinks he's he, he's got it down, but he won't know until he's out there. And Beth, of course, embraces him, uh, hugs him. Christian hugs him. Shane McMahon hugs him. I mean, uh, this footage gave me chills. I mean, they, they count down to what's going to be his return finally. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The buzzer rings. And in the documentary, they wait a little bit. They, they show the fans, like, who's it going to be? There's silence. And then uh, I think it was, the, again, the 21st entrant. You just hear Miles Kennedy throughout uh, Minute Maid Park in Houston, Texas. You think you know me. And then Houston just erupted. I remember watching it on my laptop. I'm like, oh, my God, they actually pulled this off. He's actually going to wrestle again. I mean, the editing in this documentary is just phenomenal as well. Like I said, seriously, WWE should be submitting this to film festivals. I think it was that good. As I mean, I know this is on a level that would be well accepted in the film industry. I don't know anything about it, but uh, I mean, I mean, they show Beth Phoenix crying as he makes his way to the ring. Uh, Edge hits the ring, hits four spears. Um, Baron Corbin, Randy Orton join the fray. Rated RKO reunite for a little bit. Of course, Edge battles Roman Reigns, Drew McIntyre. Randy Orton tees turning on Edge. Um, of course, Edge ends up turning on Orton, throws him over the ring. And again, Edge was one of the final three with Roman Reigns and Drew McIntyre, and Edge ends up being eliminated by Roman Reigns. Uh, and after the match, after the pay-per-view, they show Beth Phoenix watching alone backstage. Drew McIntyre obviously ends up winning the Rumble, goes on to face Lesnar. But they show Edge returning up the aisle, embracing the fans, high-fiving everybody uh, through his journey backstage. He walks through the curtain in the gorilla position backstage to a standing ovation. Shane McMahon is there, who I think was running the show that night. Uh, at least production right there, he's producing. And Shane McMahon, Roman Reigns, uh, hugged him as well, talking to Kevin Owens. Drew McIntyre embraced him. And, of course, Adam said that he had that vision of what would transpire when... He cooked all this up. Now he can say that he's back, and uh, and man, he had a massive smile on his face in, in this documentary, as you could see. And Beth Phoenix, his wife, told him that he he finally did it. He told uh, Beth that she was his Adrian to his Rocky. And of course, Beth Phoenix told him, again, Beth Phoenix believes that Judy, his mother, had something to do with this from uh, high above. And she told him that this, of course, was in him. I mean, pro wrestling's in his blood, and that he just needed to go find it and find what she already knew. And Christian said everyone was giving him adulation, so uh, he told Edge, eh, it was all right, just as Edge was like, you're such a dick. And Christian, of course, laughed it off, told him that he, he looked like he belonged and never missed a step and that he was proud of him. I mean, backstage, as he unwound in his locker room, Edge knew that it's real. Uh, he could finally pinch himself. He's like, this happened, and... Half the time, he expected the buzzer to go off, and it would be his alarm or his daughter's waking him up. <laughs> uh, just a big, big, colossal dream, and he said that it's still unreal. Getting that reaction, I mean, you can't beat that. Um, it helps when you have a kick-ass song, too, with Alter Bridge. 
Uh, Christian talked about, of course, the reaction in a video to a bar that he saw on YouTube uh, going nuts when Edge's music hit, and that he said it was probably happening all over the world. It was probably the biggest shock in pro wrestling in a very long time. And they show reaction to videos that were shot by fans, because he didn't get that when Edge first retired. People weren't recording big returns like that. I remember when the Hardy Boys returned at WrestleMania 33. Oh, my God. That, that was huge. You see all those reaction videos at, at, on YouTube. So Edge got that moment of clarity where he could actually see people reacting uh, to his return. Um, it's just unreal. And he even said that he, he went back to his hotel room that night. He had a shot of whiskey. He took it all in and, enjoy, and enjoyed it because it's, it's never going to happen again. Um, I mean, he, he said it best when he said it was a blank canvas that he can paint something that has never been painted before. And, of course, they closed with a, mo uh, a montage with uh, uh, Foo Fighters playing in the background. I think it was Walk, which is a great song. Great for this one. I think Edge was repping Foo Fighters gear throughout this entire documentary, too. Uh, um, they showed Edge preparing to come back. He said that if he can tell a great story here for a few years, again, he's under contract for three years. I think he has three matches per year. Um, if you can tell a great story for a few years and if you can help some great talents along the way, that's what's important here. Again, The Second Mountain, a book by David Brooks. I mean, this documentary ended up being about his comeback, but what, what's really important was giving back to the fans in the business. I mean, they show footage of his post-Rumble Raw speech where the crowd chants, you still got it? And he's like, you're damn right I do. And after a couple of clips of uh, crazy edge uh, stunts and spots and entrance footage with his loud pyro and music from over the years, the music stops and there's Adam Edge, or I guess you could say Adam Copeland, not Edge, but Adam Copeland, the man standing quietly with the sun behind him, birds chirping, um, content that he had uh, conquered that second mountain. And this was far and away the absolute best documentary WWE ever produced, like I said. I mean, every single person involved, most of whom will never be credited publicly by World Wrestling Entertainment, should take a bow and a shot of whiskey themselves, like Edge said, because this was an absolutely incredible, engaging film. It's, an, it's not a TV special or a company propaganda. It's an excellent film that deserves to be seen on a silver screen by audiences. I mean, that is how amazing this entire piece was. So kudos to all involved. That's my spiel on this uh, Edge, the Second Mountain documentary. Again, you can check it out on WWE Network. Go to WWE.com. It's free. Everything's free on WWE right now until uh, they rob you in a few months. They make you pay $9.99, but not right now. Go watch it. While you still can, uh, we want to get to the Friday interview of the week. Again, Ring of Honor superstar PJ Black in the house. We're talking uh, plenty of wrestling stories with The Undertaker, John Cena, working with The Nexus and Wade Barrett. They almost did The Nexus versus The Shield. How awesome would have that been? So let's talk to PJ Black after this quick message from TickPick. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's only going to bring up with you. He's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. Hey, thanks for coming on. I know you're busy. You have a show tonight? show tonight it's a, it's a two-day tournament actually the bars and shows that we do in LA most fun shows ever <laughs> i 
I'm sure. I'll jump right into it. It shouldn't be that quick. Uh, I wanted to ask you just because I find this very interesting. You started wrestling at just age 16, commuting in the UK, South Africa. Talk to me about getting your start in pro wrestling, and was it always your like dream to be a pro wrestler? Oh, yeah. My father was a wrestler and a promoter, so, you know, I grew up in the business, so that's the, ever since I was a kid, when I was eight, I decided this is what I wanted to do. And, you know, I just put all my focus, energy, and drive into that. And, uh, yeah, actually next month, it's been next, middle of March, it'll be 22 years. So I've been very lucky and uh, very blessed with a, with a long career because the average age for a, a, a wrestling a wrestler is like five years everybody so i've been very lucky you're exclusively with ring of honor now or are you bouncing around i am exclusively with ring of honor they let me um honor my dates that i already had booked previously i had about 40 independent bookings which they let me honor and they let me do international bookings which is big for me because 80 percent of my income is international bookings so right. yeah i have a really good deal with them and they you know like they they're very lenient and like forgiving this stuff. If I request, we're not working a certain weekend and I want to go work an indie show, I just have to clear it with them and they'll, they'll uh, most probably, most likely clear it for me. This also is very intriguing to me. So, PJ Black, what you started out with, you go to WWE, you're Justin Gabriel, you're PJ Black again, your name's Philip Lloyd. Like, what's the whole, like, name, like, how do you go about, like, the name picking process for this? Uh, so, with WWE, they didn't want, I've been, yeah, I've been PJ Black since I was 15 years old. In WWE, they didn't want us to, to have, like, our real names or anything that sounded similar to that or anything that we used at that time. Like, now it's cool. Now they get, you know, AJ gets to use his name. Right. And Samoa Joe and those guys. But back then, and it changes all the time. Um, so, yeah, that was something I, I initially thought of the name Justin Angel. Um, but uh, I guess Vince was friends with Chris Angel and it sounded too similar. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then that, that kind of changed to... Justin Gabriel without me knowing like I legit found out as I walked to the ring <laughs> which is fascinating either way it is what it is you get your start in uh, WWE you have you're in the newly formed faction you had the Nexus you had uh, Barrett Otunga Sheffield Young you're in your first feud with a guy like John Cena the, basically the guy in the business you're taking out all guys like Vince McMahon Brett the Hitman Hart Jericho Edge the list goes on and on Orton walk me through that experience uh, given it was like your first main roster experience in the company oh dude it's so much fun you know like uh, you know guys I I I, I watched on TV a few years before that. And next thing you know, I was in the ring, main event SummerSlam with a Nexus at the Staples Center, which is fantastic. I got to work uh, at live events with John Cena for like three, four, five months, you know, like live events, non-televised uh, shows, which was some of the most fun I've ever had in my career. It was, just, it was just surreal, you know, but then after a few months, you kind of just become one of those guys, and then the next guys come onto the road from, from SCW or NXT. You're like, oh, man, I've been watching you on TV, and now they get to work with... With you, it's kind of like just dressing, it's kind of like just evolving into a revolving door, too. So I, I got to play both ends of that side. You had the Nexus. What was the other experience? Like, you were in uh, the core. They kind of, like, split you guys up. Uh, they put, like, CM Punk in charge of the Nexus, Barrett's in the core. Like, what was that like? That was, that was cool. I mean, it was, it was kind of like a transitional era where we tried a bunch of stuff out. And, like, some of the stuff that we tried did not work. Obviously, some of the stuff did work. I mean, I, I still had a lot of fun. I, I wish they, they, they'd given us more direction at the time because when that run was over, they're like, oh, we kind of wish you guys did this. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell us to do that? We would have done that. You kind of like just put us in there and be like, do whatever you guys want. Uh, you know, like sometimes it's good to have direction. Sometimes it's, it's good not to have too much direction. But uh, we, we thought that the direction 
direction that they wanted us to go in, but we were wrong. But like, you know, it was still a fun time. Like, uh, I'm just sad. Like, the Nexus never got a WrestleMania moment. Core did get a WrestleMania match. Uh, it was very quick, very short. If you can remember that, uh, WrestleMania Atlanta. But right. nonetheless, we got a <laughs> we got a little uh, WrestleMania moment. Yeah, and that, the Nexus, that basically took up most of 2010. Like, it would have been cool to see Nexus at WrestleMania in a big, like, faction view, maybe even, like, against the core, given that oh, that was already happening. Or maybe come back for, against the Shield or something. Oh, that would that would have been awesome. Nexus versus the Shield. I never thought about that. Like, yeah, we actually pitched it a few times, and, like, it was just hard because a lot of the Nexus guys were doing other stuff. And, uh, you know, like, it almost happened a few times, actually, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately never did. Hey, who, who, who would you consider, like, your greatest, like, in-ring opponent? Like, who did you think you had the most chemistry with during your time in uh, WWE? Oh, man, uh, in WWE? Yeah. It's hard to say, you know, because everyone there is so good, and that's why they're there. They're there for the reason, for a reason, you know? Even, like, guys that, that aren't necessarily too good or too polished, once you go to FCW or NXT, man, all those guys just become really good wrestlers. Like, like in FCW, right before it turned into NXT, I had chemistry with pretty much everybody there. I mean, if, if, if one person had to stand out, probably Heath. I mean, Swagger. I mean, I had some great matches with Cena. Um, oh, man. Like, everyone on the WWE roster. Like, if, if maybe... Rey Mysterio, but it wasn't it wasn't in WWE. It was a uh, in Lucha Underground, but like, I know Rey's back in WWE, so that was also one of my favorite matches ever. I guess that like, leads me to my next question: like your favorite match in the company? Would you say Rey Mysterio? Um, in, in, in WWE. Yeah. So I, I didn't wrestle Rey in WWE. I just I tagged with him a lot. See, my favorite match in WWE. This is actually funny. Like you, you always look at matches back and you can nitpick it, right? There's always like a, a thousand things that you would have done differently. Um, one of my favorite favorite matches was a match against Hunico on Superstars actually a 20 minute match and like I always look back at that match I tried to find it on YouTube the other day and I couldn't find it but I do have it on my hard drive somewhere um, and it was just like perfect you know like the timing everything was perfect the storytelling was great like everything just happened like really good and for some reason that match stands out in my head Wow, okay, so Superstars, that, that doesn't even exist anymore, Superstars. I totally forgot that whole, like, pre-show um, thing that they had. It's, it's funny because um, Superstars and Main Event, the shows with a lot of wrestling on, internationally, they have the highest ratings. You know, like, uh, if I look back, in, in, especially in South Africa, where I grew up, or Africa, a lot of people don't speak English. So, you know, like, Raw and SmackDown, that always opens with a 20, 30, 40-minute uh, promo segment. The people that don't speak English, they don't understand that, but everyone understands wrestling. Right. So superstars and NXT and main event, like the, the shows with less talking, they actually are higher rated internationally. That's your WWE favorite match. What is your all-time favorite match in pro wrestling? Uh, I mean, it's hard to pick one, man. That one against Rey Mysterio on season three of Lucha Underground, and then the following week against Ricochet. That, that has to be one of my Oh, yeah. I can only imagine that. Both of you guys, high flyers like that. That guy's so good. Oh, man. And how how was your experience in Lucha Underground under, like, overall? I love it, man. It was some of the most fun I've had in wrestling. I've been doing this... You know, like next month it'll be 22 years. It's the, the most fun I've ever had in wrestling. Like a talented group of guys who just everyone wanted to help each other out. The locker room was great. You know, um, in wrestling you don't have a lot of friends, you have a lot of acquaintances. But I, I can honestly say that the whole locker room at Lucha Underground, we were friends. Like even now when we see each other on different shows, and you know, like I, I felt like it was magic while it was happening. You know, and uh, I took the job too because I'm a huge fan of Robert Rodriguez. I think he's a genius. He's a great director. 
Um, and, you know, his insight made that show what it was. Who would you consider to be your biggest mentor in wrestling? Uh, well, probably my dad. You know, my dad was a wrestler. I mean, he stretched me as a kid. He was, he was a pretty pretty tough guy. Like, he, in South Africa, it was a tradition that everyone's first match was always against him. Mm-hmm. And he'd, he'd be on top of that list. But uh, a few other guys, too, you know, like uh, Undertaker for sure. Um, you know, like all the... Even Cena in a way, like, because he was one of the guys that pushed, you know, at that time, no one was allowed to hit, like, these crazy moves, and they kind of, you know, WWE was going away from, like, pile drivers. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, I remember that era. Right. One of the guys that, 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 that said, like, yo, this kid can do a 450 safely on anybody, and, like, I, they made me hit it on a bunch of different people to see if I could do it, you know, and then they were like, okay, we'll let this kid hit this on TV, so, I mean, he played a huge part in that, for sure. And, you know, like, I worked out with him at his gym, and you know, just outside of wrestling, I, I can say like he was a he was kind of a mentor to me. You mentioned those guys like Cena, Taker. And do you have like any cool stories about those guys? Like any advice they gave you during that feud and during that run with the company? Oh man, so many stories that I probably shouldn't tell. <laughs> um, let me see if there's something I could tell you. Uh, I got I got to think about this for a second. And we can talk about anything on this show, unless it's illegal, then. <laughs> Let me, let me think about that for a second. I mean, there's so many great, like, road stories, you know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book about it one day for sure. <laughs> let me think. Uh, we, we'll come back to that thing. I'll think a little bit. All right, all right. Yeah, I'm definitely going to ask that again. Again, talk about anything, unless it's, you know, uh, personal, illegal, something that you absolutely can't talk about. So after WWE, you go to uh, TNA. Talk to me about your experience in TNA for that short term. Yeah, so... TNA, but uh, that was the girl that Jeff Jarrett kind of like tried to go back there and start that up. He, he started the Global Force thing, actually. Right. We did the Global Force invasion. Um, and Jeff just became a huge fan of mine for some reason. They needed someone to work the Bullet Club with the show. And I was like, let me do it. And then they're like, but you're a baby face. And I was like, I'm, I'm actually a way better heel, like, till this day. And uh, I got to the back, and Jeff Jarrett was like, you are a great heel. You should never be a baby face ever again. And then he, just, he took a liking to me, and he pushed me huge on, on the Global Force show. He let me do whatever I wanted. And I was like, I want some promo time and like this, because I don't feel like people know who I am and my personality. And, like, they, they, everyone thinks I'm a high flyer, but there's so much more to PJ Black. And so he kind of, like, gave me the ball, and I just ran with it. I wish that Global Force got a better TV deal or got a TV deal. And, uh, but anyway, so we did the TNA Invasion angle. Uh, I think I did, like, four or five TV tapings, which we filmed in one week. I was the next-gen champion, and then I won the, the King of the Mountain title, the first show. Lost it, I think, to Bobby Lashley or Bobby Roode, one of the two. I think they were both in that match. But it was a little, it was a fun little experience, you know. It was at that time TNA was very, very different to what it is now, right. and I mean it, it, it keeps evolving. Like right now, the completely different product, I think. But uh, yeah, I just, I just, I, I didn't want to sign at that time. I didn't want to sign with anybody. So I just wanted to do independence and travel and kind of like work on on my character and my stuff, my wrestling uh, like brand, if you will, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely fun. It just, uh, we never really got to sit down to discuss contract stuff because I just told him I wasn't interested right off the bat. Right after you leave WWE, of course. So uh, right now, obviously, with all elite wrestling forming, there's a lot of WWE guys who are one out, basically. They're all granting releases. Walk me through, like, the story of you leaving WWE. 
Was it out of like creative frustration, like out of like the creative wise with your character, or what was that? Yes, mainly. It was a lot of frustration. Was because every week I pitched something different, different characters, different storylines. I even went back to NXT to work on a few things with uh, Dusty Rhodes at the time and some character development and like a bunch of new stuff. And like nothing, nothing was working. Nothing was taking. I feel like we were in that transition era of. Uh, the startup of NXT, right? Like the actual performance center. And I feel like everyone who, who came into the performance center at that time were like Hunter's kids. And then that's fair enough. So he wanted to push them instead of everyone else. Everyone else who came from SCW and everyone who came before that. So I feel like I was just kind of in a rut with nothing I did was like good enough or was being seen or like none of my pictures was even being looked at. And yeah, I mean, it was kind of like a build up. Um, for like two or three weeks like even if they didn't use you they'd fly you to TV right so you just sit there it's the most boring thing ever to sit in catering all day and you, you watch all your friends like have cool segments and promos and matches and if you're not doing anything it's the most boring thing ever man so I did I, I kind of sat backstage for like two or three weeks and then I was like man I'm just gonna go home because no one even knows I'm here so I, I started just like booking my flights earlier home myself uh, and this one day on the flight they were like oh we need you for the segments and I was like you know what Never mind. I, I just just tell them I quit, and they're like, "Wow, well, no, just calm down, go home, and just like think about it, and like we'll talk tomorrow." And by the time I got home, I was just like, "You know what? This, this actually this is one of the hardest things that, that I've ever had to do, but this is I'm gonna go through with." And I just uh, I asked for my release, and they and they, they luckily they were they were kind of mad at it, but the way I did it, but like. They, they weren't too bad about it. Wow. So, and you actually, like, pitched like, your new, like, Darewolf persona with PJ Black. You actually, did you pitch that to Triple H during NXT? Like, you wanted to, like, revamp your character, bring someone new into NXT? I did. I did. And he hated the Darewolf name initially, but Vince liked it, and Vince actually trademarked it. And then, you know, when I left WWE a year or two later, uh, if you don't use a trademark, it gets abandoned. So, like, I, I jumped on it immediately. I just found it by mistake one day, and I trademarked it myself where I own it and I think it's cool I mean maybe he didn't think at the time it was cool because he's one of those guys if he doesn't come up with the idea he doesn't think it's cool uh, but uh, you know it is what it is now I own it I think it's cool and I'm going to run with it and you know if I ever go back one day I'm pretty sure they'll use it correct me if I'm wrong did you actually get an NXT offer before you signed with Ring of Honor yes um, I live in LA and Staples Center I live like a couple of blocks away from the Staples Center so they had like NXT there on the Saturday, the Survivor Series was there on the Sunday, and then Raw on Monday, and then Tuesday. So I went to all the TV days just to hang out, really, just to go say hi to all my friends. I ended up talking with the talent scouts, and I talked to Hunter and Vince and stuff like that. And uh, they, they asked if I would be open to that. And I was like, at first I wasn't, but I, I obviously on the spot I just said yes. I was like, yeah, I'd totally I'd be open to it. But then I, I thought about it for a while, and I was like, you know what, I've been there, done that. In NXT, I, I probably be required to do what 240 between 280 dates right. a year and ROH basically offered me more money for doing like 50 dates which is I mean it was kind of like a no brainer and I'd have freedom you know and I haven't done ROH ROH is probably the, the only uh, the top TV company in the in the country that I haven't won a title yet so if I can do that somehow in my next year or two at ROH then I think I'll be one of the first people to do that so that's kind of like what I'm looking at right now yeah, I feel like a lot of guys right now, like, you, you're on the road pretty much all year round in WWE. For guys like you who want to revamp your character, you feel like you get, like, uh, potentially lost in the shuffle, per se, in WWE. Because, like you 
said, it's what they want to do, not really what you want to do. You have more creative power than these other companies. Do you feel like a lot of uh, current WWE superstars might leave and like chase uh, their own like desired storylines? Uh, yes and no. I feel like a lot of guys want to do that, but a lot of guys have families, right? So you got to like take care of your family first, whatever comes first. I mean, the guys, even if they're not on TV at all, like some of my friends, that they make really good money. Like, like much better money that they could make on the indies or with a proper job or with a degree or anything. So for them, they just kind of like hold on and like they have to take care of their families. There are a few guys here and there who are not married, they did, which they might do, but it's still kind of, it's, it's hard for some guys, but I mean, it's hard to speak for, for those guys, but I, I feel like we will see that more often now, now that there are other options popping up, you know, like you've got the AEW popping up and ROH is throwing a lot of money around and TNA is like trying to make a huge comeback and uh, I, I feel like it's in a very exciting time in the business for sure, for, for wrestlers and for fans actually, you know, like I feel like we have to have other places to go, if we can somehow create the Monday Night Wars, you know, that's why I hope AEW is a big success because if, if, if that kind of happens, that I mean, how good is that for fans and for wrestlers, it's like if we have other places to go, and you even see that with NXT right now, you know, like now, whoever's in charge, say, let's say Hunter's in charge there, for real, NXT is a completely different style to what the main roster is, right? And I feel like they uh, they were like, oh man, we're going to have to keep up with the indies and all the crazy spots and things and characters that the, the guys are doing on the indies, so... Yeah, this is probably the like I, if you said that like five years ago, like WWE was the top dog with all the other industries kind of below it. Now this is really we're getting into that era where all of these places, Ring of Honor, TNA, like they're all like almost equal. I mean, not equal per se, but fans are starting to drift off other places to see other type of storylines, other type of feuds. So it's cool to see. So now that you're exclusively with Ring of Honor, what are your top goals right now for your character and your career? I just I just want like people to see uh, the real PJ Black. I've been working on a lot of character stuff, and obviously my style's completely different. People think I'm a high flyer, but I'm really much better technical wrestler and character wrestler, uh, which I want to show that. And obviously, I still do the 450, and I still do some high flying moves because you know that's the the hybrid style that that, that I'm used to and that people love. But there is just way other uh, way outside of PJ Black that I want to. I want to show people. Um, I definitely want to work with Jay Lethal. I definitely want to go for the ROH title. I feel like I, I can fit into that picture very well. And obviously, ROH has a uh, partnership with New Japan. That's also something I'm looking at. Yeah. Like my, my style would fit in there perfectly. Oh, for sure. New Japan would be exciting. Uh, you you uh, had, I don't know if you're still like doing shows for them. How was uh, the uh, NWA experience? That was fun, man. I mean, I, I love Billy Hogan's vision for that, and Dave Lagana, the producer of the show, is fantastic. Uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun. Like um, me and Aldis actually started that uh, storyline way before him and Cody did the storyline, so it was kind of like backtrack. But like I think they did a phenomenal thing with their with their with their the ten pounds of gold, the little YouTube show they have. Right, they did a fantastic job with producing that and like telling stories. Because you know that's what that's. That's for me and a lot of people from my generation. I'm not sure how old you are, but that's what got us into wrestling. You know, there was those those video packages. Remember, like WrestleMania one, two, three, four. Those little video packages of the over the top characters. Yeah. I feel like that's what NWA is trying to do. Like trying that old school storytelling, but with like a, a more modern, real feel to it. I think it's fantastic. I, I really hope that takes off. I'm sure it will. I mean, again, that's the more appealing side to wrestling fans like me and all the other 
wrestling fans around the world feel like these these companies are more open like you said to having superstars have their own creative control um, and people appeal to that way more than they do to WWE storyline where it's basically what they want they're not really listening to their fans all that much Tell me about that match. That must have been a phenomenal match. It was. It was. It was amazing, man. Like one of my dream matches for sure. And the whole plan for me was to go over, like for, for the whole month. But then he became the New Japan champion. So obviously, I can beat the, the, <laughs> the New Japan champion. But I mean, I, I don't care about that. I just got to work him. Um, I remember on the day too, we had to go up first because I had another show in England, so I had to catch a flight from JFK. So we got. I got to the building and I just got taped immediately. And he got there late, like 10 minutes before, and I was like, bro, we're up first. So uh, we literally just didn't plan anything. We just freestyled the whole match. I was like, listen, I do everything you do, like pretty much your moveset, just every time I do it, reverse it. Like, and like, I feel like if, like if, you, if you watch it back, like, you know, like you can tell, like, it was kind of weird, but it was very entertaining. I think it was one of my favorite matches for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to go back and watch that match. Again, to re- uh, reiterate, like 16 years old, you start professional wrestling. Was was pro wrestling like always the dream? Like, did you ever have any other like ideas what you wanted to do with your life? And what made you decide that that was it? Like you said, your dad was a wrestler. Yep, yep. No, I, I, I completely, I decided when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, I played the, remember the Raw video game on, on Genesis? Yeah. Or, like, mm-hmm. It was called Saturn. It was, it was called back home. And so when I played that the first time, I looked to my mom and I was like, yo, this is what I'm going to do. And obviously my mom being married to a wrestler, she wasn't too fond of the idea. And, you know, she wanted me to finish school and get a degree and stuff like that, which I did. I did just to make her happy. But uh, she's, I think she's very happy now that I'm actually making a living wrestling. Um, I'm, I'm sure. Um, one more question before I go back to the storytelling aspect. I'm very, very interested in hearing that. Rhodes, Young Bucks, they start all elite wrestling. There's WWE guys who say they're going to go over. You see a guy like Dean Ambrose who says he's not coming back. Who knows where he's going to end up? My question is, you just signed exclusively with Ring of Honor. Will we ever see PJ Black down the road in all elite wrestling? Would you ever be open to it? Totally be open to it. Like, never say never. I mean, like I said earlier, like, I really hope that they can create... They have the money backing, they have the power, I feel like, and, you know, they're building a great roster, and I feel like it's possible that they can, we can somehow create, even to us on a small scale, create, like, Monday Night Wars. Obviously, it's not going to be on Monday, but to say that the TV wars, I mean, I think it'll be fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll be completely open to that. I spoke to Cody a little while ago, and you know, we didn't talk anything about that, but, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a possibility. Uh, the ROH deal just came at a, the exact time and exactly what I wanted at the time. So, you know, like it was, it was kind of a no-brainer for me. Right. And how long are you signed with Ring of Honor? It's just, a, it's just a year deal, but after a year it becomes, either party can give 30 days notice. So it's really a really flexible deal, which which suits me perfectly. And uh, I think it's great. And financially, it's great too. And yeah, so this year should be fun. Let's see where it goes. But I feel like I'm going to be there for a little while if it goes well, because I really like what they're doing and what they're trying to do right now and the, the way the company is going. So, yeah, I mean, who knows? Like, Actually, let's do this interview in a year from now and let's see how much has changed. <laughs> so, a one-year deal, you have room... Like, you've been everywhere. You've been in multiple wrestling uh, promotions. Would you prefer signing, like, a one-year deal before, like... Obviously, you say you like it and you'd like to stay longer if you could. What's your uh, take on, like, one-year deal where you can, you have room to experience what you experience 
like it or not. And then as opposed to like a long year deal, like you were with WWE for a while and towards the end, you just didn't love it at all anymore. Right, yeah, no, I think it's perfect, man. Like, the, like seriously, like everything about this contract is perfect. And where I am right now in my life, in my career, it, it couldn't have gone any better. Like, just, like I couldn't even have negotiated something better myself. So I, I think it's great, man. Like, you know, a lot can happen in a year. But also, nothing can happen in a year. And if nothing happens, then I have options. I got so many options right now, but I feel like it's going to be a a great year for sure. And before I let you go, because I know you got that uh, match tonight, just want to reiterate what I asked before. Like any any cool, interesting stories with like the likes of Cena, Taker, any like advice they gave you over the years? Oh man, Uh, so interesting story. Uh, One of Undertaker's first matches was actually in South Africa. I mean, he was training for like a, maybe two weeks, and I needed a big, uh, a, a big tall Texan guy. Character. Yeah. And then many, many people don't know this. In, in the eighties, early nineties, South Africa was kind of like an unofficial territory. I mean, I grew up watching Hulk Hogan come job to our champion, um, Andre the Giant come job to our champion, and you know there was no YouTube back then, no dirt sheets, so no one, no one knew of this. Um, and I remember T- Taker having his very first match in this building, the same building that I had my first match in. It's the tennis stadium in Durban, and WWE still runs that building to this day. You know, so like it, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a shithole, but it's got a lot of history. And, you know, I watched a lot of matches there growing up. I watched my dad there. And, you know, like every time I see Taker, we kind of like laugh about it. And he's like, yo, is that building still the same? I'm like, it's exactly the same. They haven't even painted it yet. So we kind of just laugh about that. And, like, I feel like we have some weird connection because I told him, like, my first ever match was also in that building. And actually, another funny story, how is this for coincidence? So WWE runs that building. So uh, when did SmackDown go there? 2012 or 13, I think we ran that same building. So my first match was in that building against my dad. And when I ran there with WWE, like 15 years later, we wrestled on my dad's birthday in that same building. Wow. How weird is that coming? Full circle. Oh, that's awesome. That's an <laughs> awesome story for you. That's one of my books for sure. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And so talk to me a little bit about that. I know it's just an idea right now, but like, what's your uh, plan for that? Just like career stories, uh, locker room stories? Like... Totally. Like, I mean, I have so many heat stories. Because like, that guy is such a character. I think he's fantastic. I have so many stories of being here because I mean we were tag champs three times, right? So for like three, four years we traveled together on the road, like five days a week. So I got to spend a lot of time with him. So I have so many stories with him and all the guys, and you know, just like I've had quite a unique experience moving from South Africa. WWE moved me to the U.S., so I, have, I think I have a quite a unique and inspiring story that I want to share with people. Um, you know, but I mean, I'm still far away from that. I still want to wrestle another 10 years before I even, like, start that book. Because I want to not write, like, two or three or four like Jericho. I want to write one, one, one and done. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, writing a book's tough, so you kind of want to keep it short. Get all your stories in just one giant book. Do you have any, like, ideas for a name for it yet? No, no, I don't. <laughs> but, like, like I said, that's probably 10 years away. Or I want to wrestle as long as I can. When my body starts like giving out or giving in, that's when I'll start uh, thinking about stuff like that. But I do, I do. Every once in a while, I sit down and I think of stories just so I can like, uh, you know, put it away in case I get too many concussions one day or get old or Alzheimer's or whatever. So I, so I do have like memories of these road stories. Like right now, I can't even think of any more stories like 
a bad scene and take over. Like, there'll be many of them, I'm sure. I just have to sit down and think about it for a second. And there's, like, a lot of guys I hear who, like, one, towards the end of their career, they kind of wish they kind of, like, wrote things down, like, little stories down, like, regardless of where they were in the business, just so they can, like, go back, check it out, and, like, you potentially write a book about it. Right, exactly. And I, I think it's just, like, thinking ahead. Um, and we've learned from other guys, too, to to do that you know like Jericho writes still to this day writes down every single match he's done yeah. and what the finish was where it was and I think that's a great idea I kind of wish I did that oh yeah man for sure I mean not too late you say you have 10 years left do it now <laughs> that's uh. true or maybe I'll just document the last 10 years but you know like with YouTube now like I kind of just document everything and put it on the YouTube channel I kind of vlog it so there's kind of like a record kind of of everything I'm doing from now on thank goodness for technology right For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.